Technicolor Jesus is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. Technicolor Jesus, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. My name is Matt. I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm a scholar, minister, and writer in Pennsylvania. Matt, have you ever seen a Russian drink a glass of water? It's been a while, Adam. It's been a while, but I think it's somewhere back in there. What about you? Uh, just once. Rainwater. Well, as you might have guessed it, Adam and I are taking a trip back retro style to Stanley Kubrick's 1964 classic Dr. Strangelove. We're going to talk a little bit about the end of the world. Maybe that's a bit of election fatigue. Maybe it's a run-up to the apocalyptic language of Advent. Either way, today we are in the end times. And in our first segment, Justification by Faith, we're going to dig into what this movie has to say about theology, the church, and the world. In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with Dr. Strangelove for this coming lectionary Sunday, which will be November 25th, the Reign of Christ Sunday, the final Sunday in the lectionary calendar before we turn to year C. Are we going to year C, Matt? Uh, you think I would know, but I don't off the top of my head. <laughs> and in our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're reading, watching, or following. So, Adam, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. In the early 1960s, fresh off of his high-profile adaptation of Lolita and the even higher-profile Roman epic Spartacus, Stanley Kubrick started thinking about a film about the nuclear tension of the Cold War. He optioned a thriller called Red Alert by Peter George, but could never quite get the tone of the film or the screenplay where he wanted it until finally he realized that what it really needed to be was a comedy. A dark comedy full of bravado and buffoonery and sexual innuendo that of course ends more or less with the end of the world. The result, as you know, is 1964's Dr. Strangelove, in which a U.S. Air Force general played by Sterling Hayden single-handedly deploys his bombers for nuclear strike in Russia, and the U.S. military establishment sort of scrambles to try and stop him. Adam, as you know, this movie is insane, like some twisted child of Monty Python and Tom Clancy, and never more insane than in the hands of Peter Sellers, who shows up in three different roles, including the titular doctor, some sort of military scientific advisor left over from Nazi Germany. Adam, talk to me. What was it like revisiting this twisted movie in 2018? So it was a reminder for me initially of all of the ways in which the 60s and the, the period of the Cold War in this country were obsessed with nuclear warfare. And um, I was, uh, I didn't live through the brunt of that. I mean, we were, we were alive during the tail end, but I, I, I never had the, the, the full weight of the, the nuclear holocaust laid on my shoulders, as was pretty common during this time. And so I've, I've, only able, I've only ever been able to try and understand what that was like through movies like Dr. Strangelove, through books like uh, The Canticle for Leibovitz. You ever read that book? Yeah, sure. Uh, um, it's a great book. But, but 
at the heart of it is this deep terror that nuclear warfare is imminent and that it, when it comes, there is no going back, that, there, that the, the world will be so categorically changed that we will have to rethink society, human relationship, all of that. Um, when I originally watched this movie as a teenager, and I've probably seen it probably a dozen times since, I didn't quite understand all of the jokes and where the the the, the line of terror and comedy were were intersecting. And this time, I, I really I watched it on a train yesterday, and I just giggled throughout the entire thing, while also feeling like this hit much too close to home in a way that was was real and um, and new. The ways in which disinformation and conspiracy theories have infected people in tremendous places of power were um, was a, a little disconcerting. But more than anything else, I was I was struck by this madness tw and twisted logic of our nuclear policy that is still in place in many ways, which is a, a policy of mutually assured destruction. This idea that um, that the way that we deter other people from launching nuclear warheads at us is by also having nuclear warheads pointed at them. And so that we are all assuring each other that our missiles will launch before there's land. And in this strange and twisted world, that is what counts for security. And to make matters even more strange, any movement towards security or towards protection from other people's bombs is a betrayal of what is the agreed upon idea of mutually assured destruction. So there was apparently, as I was doing research for this movie, uh, a, a plot by the Rockefellers and some other really important, famous and rich people who were going to try and build like underground cities where they could house millions and millions of people in the event that there was... Um, the nuclear holocaust and um and a lot of this these ideas got scuttled because the government um was afraid that by ensuring the security of some we would um we would throw out of alignment how much destruction would happen and therefore make the policy of mutually assured destruction um uh would undermine the policy of, of mutually assured destruction. And so this is what we call peace. And, and that was the interesting thing watching this movie now is like, is trying to see what, what counts as peace through the lens of this movie and through the lens of generals and people in high positions of government. And there is a sign that continues to show up at the Air Force Base, which is peace is our profession. Right. It shows up over and over and over again. And, um, and I just I can't help but think that there there is no no gospel rationale that can help us understand mutually assured destruction as a way or an avenue towards peace. And I continue to think about this. And this this all became more interesting to me also as I remembered um, a policy of Israel called the the Samson option. Are you familiar with this at all? I don't think so. So. Um, rather than have a policy of mutually assured destruction, which is a sort of agreement that the United States and the Soviet Union were had, Israel's nuclear policy is, is basically governed by nuclear opacity. They are unwilling to assure anyone that they have nuclear capabilities. Everyone assumes that they do. There is good reason to believe that they do. 
but they will, they have never come on record letting anyone know that they have a nuclear warhead. That said, there was, and there's been good reporting to suggest that there is a policy within Israel's um, uh, higher echelons of power that if their enemies, which is largely parts of the Arab world, were to try and invade, they were ready to drop one of their nuclear warheads in the Negev, which is basically just sand, as a deterrent to let everyone know we do actually have nuclear capabilities. And they called it the Samson option, which is an interesting uh, allusion to this moment where Samson, as one of the judges, you know, destroys himself and the Philistines by like crushing them under uh, the stadium. Um, and I can, all of this is sort of rattling around in my brain as we move into the Advent season and think about what does it mean for this sort of like Prince of Peace, this, um, this stillness and um, this promise of peace that continues to show up in that season. While meanwhile, we are buying our peace through the promise of destruction. So you covered a lot of terrain right there, and I'm excited to go back and pick through pieces of it, especially like questions about uh, some, some of the ways in which this film resonates for us in 2018, the language of conspiracy theory, the, what, is the, what is the modern corollary for the threat of nuclear annihilation that 1964 was hanging it underneath? And I, I'm curious to pick that through. But I think my, my first line of response is to... Is to is to point out the, the sort of obvious, which is that uh, alongside everything you've just said, this film can't figure out any way of doing any of this except through the language of dark comedy. And so, yes, there's all of this, um, all of this uh, language of threat and destruction, all of the complexity and the absurdity of of, of deterrence and the ridiculous bureaucracy that goes on underneath to to create this kind of mutated logic of peace that you talk about really well and and the film can't do any of that without just going to this place of absurdity it can't pull it off with the 60s language of like uh arch villainy there's no james bond villain here there's no like big nemesis in some dark room there's no um arch intelligence in charge instead it's just it's just a room full of idiots yeah incompetence right it's total incompetence it's incompetence all the way through it's incompetence that can only competently adhere to a set of incompetent regulations um and so what we have is uh um George C Scott as the general who can kind of barely keep his pants on um, and and can't think any more broadly than kind of with the with the rush of excitement of the fulfillment of a particular military operation. Um, we've got um, the various Peter Sellers roles that are all just ludicrous in their own way. We have an entire war room that's got like eighty other people in it who never say a damn word. Uh, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, the the most. You know, it's speaking of kind of modern corollaries, to me, the, one of the most unnerving things about this film was watching probably the most competent person in there is the president, uh, who still does not have the competence to 
see above the situation that he's in and recognize the options that he has beyond the ones that are presented to him. It is uh, uh, striking and not particularly heartening to realize that the 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 thing that this movie can't quite imagine is a scenario in which the president himself would be the incompetent arch in the film, um, which I suspect is what we might get if we were making it in 2018. Uh, and and yet, yeah, yeah. So this what we end up with is just that's why I call it kind of Monty Python and Tom Clancy mixed together. It's just yeah, it's a great description. It's it's um it's it's funny in this this kind of foolish unnerving almost nihilistic way and i'm so struck by by the the part where there's no other way to tell the story except to get to that just that sort of um clownish version of who we are right and there there are so many different moments in the movie where that that's that does hit close to home i i think in in the past we've talked about the distinction between the world that we live in is it a with respect to politics especially, is this a world of Veep or is it the world of House of Cards? And this movie is like, no, it's Veep. These people are utterly incompetent. Like, let's not pretend they're Machiavellian and clever and smart when really they're just incompetent idiots. And uh, and this movie really comes down that most of the people in power are led around by their libido, by their like deep desires and needs. And those desires and needs are are human. But the fact that they're human means that we've also put place them in like tremendous places of power where their human, you know, vicissitudes, the the their own desires and needs and wants have real ramifications. There's I mean the the hilarious and tragic moment where George C. Scott as Buck Turgidson, the the general, is saying, you know, Mr. President, I'm not I'm not saying we're not going to get our hair messed up, but you know, it might just be 10, 20 million people right. who are going to die. And he doesn't seem to understand the full weight of what that actually means. And I mean, similarly, there's another moment where uh where the president is on the phone with the Russian premier and he's trying to explain to him what happened. And he has to stop and say, no, I, you know, no, I should call you more. Yeah, no, no. Like, and has right. this like little moment where you, you hear the insecurities and the anxieties of the premier through the conversation and realizing that, um, that their relationship has suffered because they haven't, they haven't had enough one-on-one time in conversation or something like that. Um, and Throughout this movie, you, you see you see a lot of that, and there there are a group of competent people. Um, the um, the character that uh, uh, that Sellers plays, the British officer, he who kind of saves the day, but also the pilots who are doing exactly what they've been ordered to do. Right, and their plane nearly gets shot down, but they are they are going to like go along with their mission. But their mission is only ever as good as the people giving the orders. And when we're in that war room, we see that the people giving the orders are a bunch of fools. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, all they can do is very steadfastly follow the, the, I mean, the set of procedures that has been outlined for them. So there's no one who has the capacity to say, what if, what if these rules aren't actually the right thing for this moment? And then so in some ways, the war room and the, the plane are not entirely dissimilar spaces because both of them are just opening up the the protocol for what we do in this in this eventuality and following it to a letter without doing a lot of critical reflection. Um, I was also really struck as in watching this too, uh, this time, that there is a moment between knowing that the world is going to end and the world not yet ended. It is the last basically five minutes of the movie. Right. Yeah, and... I had kind of forgotten that that space existed. I kind of thought that the movie ended with, you know, him going down the bomb off the plane. And that was the and that was kind of the closing, the closing narrative beat. But no, it's not true. And, and it moves back to this <laughs> larger conversation about going and finding a mine that they could go all go down. And right. Um, and and how they would need to repopulate the world. So, you know, we send women to every man and you start to see that their own imaginations begin to, to, to start to, to, to churn and move. And they realize, oh, this wouldn't be so bad. And almost immediately after recognizing that they have been responsible for the destruction of the world, they are plotting and scheming to maintain positions of power and privilege. And I think that there's something about that that is intriguing to me as an idea that Kubrick is getting at. Um, yeah. They get to live underground in the mine. There's, there's no question that they are the ones who would, ever, who would go down there. Um, and they still find a way, even in the destruction of the world, for their own lives to be understood as more important than the rest of the world, even though they are the ones responsible and probably should suffer the consequence. If anyone is in that mind, it should not be the ones who right. are responsible for the destruction of the world. And yet they recognize that from a position of power, they will get to survive. And as I watch this again, that's the thing that was so, I mean, actually probably the most terrifying is that the urgency and the lack of emotion in the war room with the consequences impending is um, is troubling. It's deeply, deeply troubling. It's because the mine is basically presented as a sex palace, right? Yes. I mean, so like, like, let's not go too much further here without recognizing that this film is basically about sex. Like, and... and it, it, it begins with two planes having sex. Right. It begins with a midair refueling, which was intentionally chosen by Kubrick and Pablo Faro, the title designer. I'm going to talk about him in a second. Uh, um, it, intentionally chosen to to be about planes having sex. And then the rest of the movie is basically George C. Scott having been interrupted um, to go take an important phone call from his previously scheduled coitus. And he's going to get back to it, even if it means he has to go into a mine with... Uh, with a hundred to one female to male ratio, this movie is about consummation of the sexual act, and it and and so of course they can't think about it at some higher level because this is like fundamentally Kubrick's his critique and his observation is that 
yeah, the folks in this room are, as you said, kind of human beings who are working on very incarnate and in ways carnal kind of uh, uh, desires, and they can't do the higher order work of even thinking reasonably, certainly rationally, certainly with any kind of empathy. Right. And, and which makes the idea of mutually assured destruction ridiculous on the face of it, because it assumes that you build bombs never to set them off. Right. And I think what Kubrick's trying to say here is that that's not how these men in power work. They, they're not interested in not having the orgasmic moment. They want to see it go off. Right. And mm-hmm. no matter how many policies they're going to put in place to try and prevent that, it is inevitable because they are used to getting their rocks off. Like, that is how it works. So as I think about this movie in terms of I'm preaching or certainly in terms of kind of a church in the contemporary theological moment, I mean, that's one of the ways I go with it. One is to... To, to wonder what the modern corollary for um, nuclear fallout is. And I, I suspect that it is climate change, um, that that is kind of the, the terror that we live under, and that one of the things the church has to do is is recognize and pastor within that terror. Uh, though, you know, nuclear destruction looks somewhat... That 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 paranoia seems somewhat less justified in the mirror in the in the rearview mirror, though I'm not sure it is. Um, climate change feels very real and and feels very justified now. But the the other kind of theological church question that this brings up for me, as the film has this this sexual language throughout of it, is to wonder whether or not we are talking in the mainline church about sex enough or in some helpful way or in some healthy way. I mean, part of the argument in the film is that the political and the sexual are just inextricably connected. You can't talk about one without talking about the other. And obviously the mainline church's history talking about sex is is dodgy at the best. Usually we come at it from a very puritanical perspective or we're dealing with our own scandals or we're talking about abstinence or whatever, or we just cut it out entirely, which I think seems more or less to be the current modus operandi in the mainland church that I know. But I wonder if sex and politics are disconnected and if we want to be able to speak to the political reality of the world where it is, is there some imperative here for the church to figure out a different or newer vocabulary for talking about sex on the whole? I think it's such a good question, and it's a really important question, because I think it's attached to the ways in which uh, the church is afraid to talk about bodies. Right. um, Yeah. Which is also a political question, and the ways in which the church is afraid that by broadening its understandings of the ways in which bodies operate, the way bodies look, the way that that bodies can pair with other bodies, is um, is to call into question something very central to the the, the church's larger understanding of bodies, which um, has has not been done a lot of favors by by Paul and by the early church, and it's distinction between like soul and body, the material right. world, sort of like a, 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 a 
crypto Gnosticism that kind of has been in the water of the Western church for, I mean, from the very beginning. Yeah, from day one. Um, and so, you know, when we talk about sexuality, I think it's also attached to the ways in which bodies operate. You know, there's only one woman in this movie. Right. Um, two, if you want to count the centerfold um, that the that the pilot is is looking at while he's flying a plane. Um, but she um, she shows up as a sort of object of desire. And um, and yet her and she she call there's a moment in the movie when when the the woman calls buck turgenson the george e. scott character um and asks him when he's going to be back and he um strangely is willing to try and um try and soothe whatever anxiety she has even as he's making decisions that are going to you know result in the end of the world um and he can never quite prioritize his own life, right? And I think you're right to recognize that the, the church can't quite prioritize this either. And I wonder if there are, are ways in which we can can begin to help it. I, I was just in New York this last weekend, and Christina, my wife, um, we, were, um, we were walking down the street, and we went and saw the first... Um, non-gendered clothing store. So none of the clothes are are divided by male and female sizes, um, and intentionally so. And it it was a very interesting moment to see the ways in which this store was a sort of place of community organizing, but also a place of commerce and a place of fashion. And it was crossing across all of these different lines and how uncomfortable I was initially with the whole idea because it, it operated, it was, and, and I was the first thing my wife and I asked each other was, well, how do I know what size I am? Because I have this norm of, 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 or a metric by which I gauge how what uh, what to wear and it's making up its own metric it says you know here are the here are these and they they conform to these particular measurements in 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 the different shaped bodies of the world but we're we are going to take a third route through here and i was i was really inspired by it. it's it's a it's a it's called the fluid project ph l u i d and it's gender nonconforming mission i thought was also a really interesting approach to the variety and diversity of bodies and the ways in which those bodies have sex and the ways in which those bodies pair and the ways in which those bodies um wear clothes in order to attract someone in order that they might have sex the ways in which our identity is built by our clothing. I mean, all of that was all wrapped up in this store, and I was, I was inspired by it, even as I was made uncomfortable by it. Well, before we move on to talking about scripture, I at least want to talk for a couple of minutes about just the look and feel in the production of this movie. Uh, I'm, I was struck on rewatching it on how simple this film is. Uh, it's basically three sets. I mean, there's a the interior of a B-52, 
there's the war base where Sterling Hayden is hanging out, and then there's the war room itself. Um, there are a couple of other like one-offs. There's the apartment where George C. Scott first makes his appearance. There's a bunch of B-roll footage of bombers cruising over things, but it's all just stock footage. In fact, a lot of it was kind of promotional footage that Boeing had shot that Kubrick just swiped to use in the movie. Um, there's a little bit of money they spend on the battle scene at the base, but that's really about it. This is actually really a, a stylistic accomplishment uh, or movie that there's not a lot of money on the screen, but it comes together really well. But then the other piece of that that struck me was the ways in which the you can see kind of early studio-bound Kubrick and later um, visual iconoclast Kubrick hanging out in the same movie. I mean, the, the, the scenes at the base just kind of look like classic Hollywood filmmaking for the most part. Um, but then, like, the stuff in the war room is just amazing i mean the it's production strange, man it's very weird very yeah weird. and the production design is such is so iconoclastic and the camera work is just it's just totally of its own it's uh, so dark it's just the darkest room it's so rare that you see a room that dark in any movie let alone three quarters of a movie right and it's hard to even like you know i spent a little bit of brain power there trying to picture like what what building do they imagine that this is in? This thing is the size of a baseball diamond. Like, where, where is this happening? But it doesn't really matter. It's just, of course, a, a big dark room in the middle of the void. But it's so distinctive compared to the rest of the film, which is, is, is less so in a way. And then, you know, all the way to the level of, well, we've got some stock footage of bombers and we're just going to roll with them. And I, I just... I was struck by by both the ways in which his eye is on full display, and also there's there's some places where it feels less less pronounced. It's a, it's a remarkable the war room in particular is remarkable um, as a, as as the lighting is um, is got to be so difficult to keep that type of contrast. Um, but in addition to that, just it, the way that it highlights the performances and the sort of manicness of the performances, I, I think what's crazy is that um, the, the performances of Scott and Sellers in particular are so big, which you don't see on, on screen very often. You don't see on um, that. They, they seem to be overacting, but in the void of that place, it's the only way they can keep from not getting swallowed up. Uh, and it's just such an interesting set of performances, especially in the war room between Sellers as his and the two characters and George C. Scott as the sort of third major character in that scene. So last note, we would be remiss in not noting that uh, Pablo Ferro is the title designer here who does the hand-drawn titles over the B-52 mid-air refueling sequence at the beginning. Legendary title designer in 60s Hollywood and actually died over the weekend. News broke yesterday that he had passed. And if you do nothing else as a result of listening to this, like go just treat yourself to a couple of opening title sequences that he worked on. Um, uh, Thomas Crown Affair, Strange Love, uh, Clockwork Orange, uh, Bullet, uh, some really amazing work in a really seminal period of kind of Hollywood visual formation. 
Couldn't agree more, Matt. Let me also say that we're grateful for our partnership with the Christian Century, and we want to guide your attention to the great work that they're doing there. Walter Bergman just um, published a book review in the Century uh, where he reviewed one of my favorite political scientists, a guy named James C. Scott. Uh, it's a wonderful read, if only just to see how one giant interacts with another. James C. Scott has famously written a lot about ideas of subversion and how states operate and and his his newest book against the grain which i've actually ordered and, and haven't yet read is um is supposed to be really interesting also if you're listening and don't yet subscribe to the century technicolor jesus listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription for more information visit christiancentury.org podcast offer and if you're looking for something to read or something to give to that loved one who's interested in theology this christmas you can buy my book it's called the holy no worship as a subversive act it's out head over to Amazon or to your local bookstore and buy the book. Let's move on to preaching. This segment is called Preaching to the Choir. We're looking at the lectionary passages for this coming Sunday, Reign of Christ Sunday. We've got the last words of David. We've got a kingship prophecy in Daniel and another one in Revelation. We've got a couple of psalms to the monarchy and in John's gospel, Jesus and Pilate arguing about whether or not Jesus is in fact king of the Jews. Adam, as you look at all of these monarchic texts, what strikes you most in the wake of our viewing of Strange Love? I think what I was struck by most uh, watching Strange Love yesterday was the ways in which these, this powerful kingship language, uh, the ways in which it terrifies and shocks, but also is a source of comfort. And, and there is within the language this double-edged uh, sword of having a powerful ruler, uh, that having a powerful, strong ruler who will protect you is also um, a target uh, and, and, and the, can inspire retaliation of a, of a particularly violent sort in enemies. But it's also um, a way in which that power can, can be pushed back towards the humans upon which the ruler is serving over uh you 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 can end up as the ruler hurting the weak because you don't see them and you can never see them they are just a number they're just a, a group and and i think i saw that a lot in strange love which is the ways in which they talk about destruction is so um sterile it's it it comes in the form of numbers and it very rarely do they ever, if at all, come to grips with the fact that their actions um, have resulted in the deaths of others. And, um, and so trying to figure out how, how that, that ruler language both comforts us, how, how, how we, the weak, can borrow the strength of the ruler, but it's a fickle comfort. It, it's not one that lasts. And I think about that a lot in our own world and the ways in which people want a, a, an executive office to be strong and how that strength is communicated to the world, but also not totally recognizing the ways in which that um, that strength is is fickle. And it's, and it's easy to get on the other side of that power um, with the wrong word or the wrong action or the wrong posture. Yeah, and it's it, and there's a there's a danger in it too. I mean, the the folks in Strange Love who are the most, um, who who most seek the comfort of strong power are also the ones who, 
I mean, it's Strangelove himself who falls right out of Nazi Germany and starts doing uh, Mein Fuhrer salutes at the in the second and third acts of the movie. There's this kind of there's this slippery slope between the comfort of leadership and fascism that shows up real fast in there. Yes. Um, you know, and and there's there's a lot of fascism in this film. I mean. Both with Strange Love, the General Ripper has his own kind of strong man. I mean, there's leadership there if you want it. He's going to lead you right off the cliff, but he's got it. Uh, and I, I'm, I, I was. And there's a clarity of vision, right? Right. I mean, yeah, absolutely. You want to follow someone who knows what they're do- who knows exactly what they want. There you go. Um, and who has diagnosed the world and understands what actually is going on? Right. Right. Um, and I, th- it, some of that. I mean, it echoes throughout these texts, but particularly kind of the nuance of it echoes in that dialogue for me between Jesus and Pilate, where Jesus is so concerned to say to Pilate that my kingship is not of this world. Um, and, and Pilate there is, is in his own way, I mean, sure, he's, you know, the conventional reading is he's he's threatened by Jesus's claim of, by the claims made about Jesus of political incarnate authority but he's also projecting onto Jesus that same kind of fascistic concern that like, is Jesus going to go be the monarch who has that strength and that vision and that, um, that ability to mobilize. Uh, it's the same kind of power relationship in a way that strange love is trying to project onto Peter Sellers as president character. Um, yeah. And it feels very complicated and, and, um, it makes that question of lordship really, really a critical one and not a simple one. Because I think that 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 trigger of like, what does it mean to have authority in this world? Um, what does it mean to have the 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 rule in this world or not in it becomes kind of the critical question. I think so too, and I and I the, the movie does a good job of. Uh, of asking what does it what does it mean to to have a king from a different land? I think Mandrake, who is a Royal Air Force uh, officer, is in some ways serving the American Air Force. So he's a, a you know he's a British soldier serving at the will of another land's ruler. And throughout the entire movie, he is just he's sort of overwhelmed by the stupidity of it all. Right. And he seems to be the only one who can see how dumb it is. And he's ultimately the one that um, that can stave off the worst of, of the nuclear annihilation within Russia, though due to some other circumstances, can't stave off the end of the world. And um, and I and I continue to think, like, what is it when Jesus says, you know, I, I'm like. I'm of a different kingdom. My kingdom's not here. My kingdom's a different place. What does that mean for us if we as Christians are trying to pledge some measure of fealty to Christ? And what does that mean for us in the nation of which we're citizens? How interested should we be in giving power to the executive office? Right. How much loyalty are, uh, uh, how much of our own loyalty are we willing to offer for our security how i mean i think these are all really important questions that are facing the christian church especially in the us right now which is to to what extent do um does our fealty to christ and christ's kingdom outside of this world 
require us to um, to undermine our loyalty to our our own nation. And I don't, I don't have a good answer to that, but I think that this movie continues to ask that, which is especially in the character of Mandrake, which is like, what does it mean when you um, you have to serve under a ruler who is not yours? Yeah, and, and I think this is a really interesting. That's a really interesting way in to that question, and it 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 makes me wonder about the language of is fealty to Christ. Does fealty to Christ mean in kind of Mandrake's world that we we participate in um, this American system or this political system, but we do it with an imagination that is not born here? And we do it with an ethical framework that is not born here, much like Mandrake's is not, so that we have the capacity to ask the kind of critical questions about the goings-on that no one else in the room seems to be able to conjure, because everybody else is drinking the same water, um, the same fluoride-infested water, I would point out. <laughs> but that's, that's the question, right? When we, when we have people in positions of power who um, who are very confident in their understanding of the world and how it works and the, the, the central principles. And we, as Christians, recognize that their diagnosis of the world and its principles of how it operates are antithetical to what we understand the gospel to be or the model of Christ to be. How do we then um, both participate, resist, subvert, undermine, support in the midst of that, that I think is a, a question that the church right now continues to ask itself. Yeah. And, um, and there's, there's, there's room for asceticism. There's room for opting out um, to an extent. And yet that opting out will, re but we need something more than just opting out. Um, but neither can it be a sort of full-fledged fealty to the structures and systems of the world um, that prop themselves up as, as in the position of lordship. Yeah. I mean, I think that was, that was the, the overwhelming sense that I had after the 2016 election, which was, um, there are a lot of people who in my world who were, um, who were terrified and sad upon the election of our president. And I was also struggling with the fact that I think a lot of the people I knew had made democracy their God. And, and I'm not sure what that is like. I believe in democracy. I believe in it as a sort of system of governance and also want to be able to recognize that my fealty is to, to Christ. And I don't quite know where that begins and ends most days. And yet it's still... A question and that we continue to ask ourselves, especially when on these Sundays where we lift up Christ as king, as ruler, and we borrow an analogy and a metaphor from our earthly systems to better understand who God is. Well, I think you've set the challenge for Reign of Christ Sunday really well, but now it is going to be time for our last segment. This is called Postludes. It's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. So Adam, what's your postlude for the week? So as I said earlier in the show, I was in New York this last weekend. It was an opportunity for my wife and I to get away for the first time in a very long time. And um, 
you know anything about Mexican food, you know that New York is mostly a waste a wasteland with respect to Mexican food. Uh, you can find really good high end Mexican food, which is the case with New York. You can find really good high end anything. Uh, it's quite an expensive place. Uh, but for the first time in going to New York for many, many, many years, uh, I found tacos that approximate or approach the quality of California tacos. And get this, Matt, the price. Three, $3 tacos. It's called Tacos Number One. And it is in Chelsea Market. And I want to advise everyone to go to it because it is delicious. And it got me thinking that I had I had largely given up on New York as a Mexican food opportunity. And um, and somewhere in the midst of the sort of ingenuity of humans and the ability for quality to kind of like raise up, I was um, I was really struck. I was. Um, by how amazing this food was, but that it had arrived eventually, that it was there. And um, and that gave me great hope. It's funny. My, my wife has been in New Jersey for a few days now, which is my ancestral homeland. And the first or second night she was gone, I ended up having a very, very pleasant dream where I was at a deli counter ordering a Reuben sandwich. Um, and I believe that this is my subconscious <laughs> way of processing that she has gone to a place where you can get good corned beef. Uh, and so I am resonating with your like search for the the tacos of your ancestral homeland in places where you are not. Um, and uh, I did wander around Austin just a little bit looking for a good corned beef sandwich uh, and found a decent one, but not quite the best. Yeah. Not not quite the one of my dreams quite yet. Not quite the one of your dreams. It's yeah. always yeah. It's a little it's elusive. A, yeah, yeah, absolutely. How about you? So a couple of like B plus movie recommendations from me, um, that are just kind of interesting and bouncing around my head. One is on Netflix right now in the vein of the conversation we had earlier in the show, uh, to check out a documentary called Film Worker. She's about a guy named Leon Vitali, who was a British actor who was cast in Kubrick's Barry Lyndon, and then gradually kind of gloms onto Kubrick and becomes Kubrick's right-hand man to a almost kind of frightening extent. Uh, ends up being his the kind of curator of his film library, and in some ways his kind of personal assistant, and seems to live comfortably in this place where Kubrick is just a demanding jerk all the time. Uh, this movie kind of asks some interesting questions about what sort of person sublimates themselves to someone else so easily, and then also asks some hard questions about Kubrick and his infamous willingness to demand and expect and accept what seems like total subservience. Uh, it doesn't quite ask them as ex ask those questions as explicitly as I would like, um, or maybe that's just the aura of Hubrick hanging over the movie. But it's, it's worth 90 minutes of your time, especially in the wake of watching Strange Love. Um, the other is a, a totally charming uh, new movie that I watched on a plane called Hearts Beat Loud. Yeah, I've been meaning to see this. This is basically High Fidelity 2. Um, which I like high fidelity, right? Right. Like this is, I'm, I'm totally the target market for this. Uh, uh, Nick Offerman plays, uh, a widower whose daughter is graduating high school, um, and is about to go off to college. And he decides to process his, 
his kind of empty nest grief by trying to um um make by trying to form a band with her uh and and also trying to kind of hold on to the record store in Brooklyn that he owns that is kind of collapsing around him. Uh, this movie is totally charming. It has really charming music and it has, it's not quite in the, it's not quite dead center romantic comedy, but it's got some of those beats to it. Uh, and it just made me feel good. And honestly, if you need a movie to make you feel good or like a good one to watch with family at Thanksgiving, you could do much worse got tony collette life danner and ted danson as a different kind of bartender i found it very delightful that's what i've got that sounds amazing i probably will watch that with my family this thanksgiving yeah you could do worse all right that about wraps it up for this episode if you like the show be sure to leave a rating on itunes or come to the show page to discuss how we got it all wrong we'd love to hear feedback Drop us a line on our Facebook or Twitter or at the show page at technicolorjesus.com. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, Floridation. All right, Matt. Thanks. Thanks, Adam. Happy Thanksgiving.